Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. The number 43. To longtime fans of NASCAR, just the mention of it speaks volumes. Millions of people around the world that aren't all that familiar with NASCAR hear the number and immediately think of one name, that one person that made it famous. He is Richard Petty, a sports icon that's done it all in stock car racing. His name is there among the greats alongside Babe Ruth, Mario Andretti, Jack Nicholas, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, and Tom Brady as one of the absolute best in sports history. Remind Richard of that, and he just shakes his head in humble amazement. He's just one of us, and always will be. Richard is truly NASCAR's greatest ambassador, whether meeting with the last person in line for an autograph or the President of the United States. Either way, he's just Richard, modest, a bit shy, down-to-earth, and unpretentious. Ironically, when Richard began his NASCAR career in the summer of 1958, he had a special number in mind he hoped to make famous. It was number 24. The opposite of the number 42, his famous father, Lee Petty, drove to three NASCAR Cup Series championships in 1954, 1958, and 59. Bella driver Jimmy Llewellyn was using the number 24 that year, prompting the disappointed Richard to say, oh well, guess I'll just run 43. Over the next 32 years, Richard made the number 43 the most successful and the most recognized number in all of motorsports by driving it to seven Cup Series championships, seven Daytona 500 victories, and 192 of his 200 career wins. Oh, and the funny thing was, Richard did run number 24 once in 1959 at Oswego, New York. As it turned out, there wasn't very much luck attached to the number after all. He started 13th in that race and finished 13th. After Richard wheeled the number for the last time on November 15th, 1992 in Atlanta, the King, as he was known, turned the 43 over to a variety of drivers as a team owner. Bobby Hamilton drove it to victory at Phoenix in 1996, as did John Andretti at Martinsville in 1999 and Eric Almarola at Daytona in 2014. Richard has been involved in several team changes over the years with Petty Enterprises, Mike Kerr Motorsports, Gillette Evernham Motorsports, Richard Petty Motorsports, and now Petty GMS Motorsports beginning in 2022 with Ty Dillon wheeling the number 42 Chevrolets and Eric Jones will be in the number 43 Chevrolets. Richard will serve as chairman of Petty GMS Motorsports and He enjoys seeing the number 42 and 43 together again for the first time since 1982. Long live the king and long live number 43. 
Ken, you know, we had a very interesting uh, change of events after we taped last week's show, and that was Richard Petty uh, has essentially sold the majority of Richard Petty Motorsports to GMS Racing, uh, owned by Maury Gallagher. He was the primary owner. And now it has become uh, Petty GMS Racing. That, to me, was not only a very huge uh, announcement, which pretty much, to me, came out of nowhere. I think it was very, you know, definitely kept very hush-hush. But it also kind of signals the end of an era, if you will, for Richard Petty the King, because he probably, from what I understand, he will not be that involved in the day-to-day operations of the team. They'll remain in North Carolina. They'll be outside of States. I think they're in Statesboro, actually. But, you know, the he'll be more of a, um, what he's been for the last, you know, uh, 60-some years. He's also going to be an ambassador for the sport, ambassador for the team. But uh, the majority of the uh, decisions and things like that will be run by the folks that are going to run the operation, uh, you know, the com- combined operation. Your thoughts about, the sale and the new name and the new organization. I mean, it is definitely a um, kind of a, a, a changing of legacy, if you will. And uh, I'm kind of sad to see it, but at the same time, you know, Richard said he will be around as many races as he can be. Um, your thoughts about this whole uh, merger between Richard Petty Motorsports and GMS Racing? Well, I'll tell you what, Jerry, it's uh, as we talked about uh, in, in the lead in piece, uh, you know, so many times uh, Richard Petty has been involved in in various race teams after Petty Enterprises went away in, in 2008. And, you know, that was a long time standing uh, race team that Lee Petty started basically from what's what's called a Reaper shed, which is basically a shed there at Level Cross with two sides and a roof on it. It's pretty much where it started uh, back in 1949, when when Lee Petty started Petty Enterprises, and what was so funny about uh, Petty Enterprises when they needed a little extra space, they go out and win a race, and they poured a little bit of concrete, and put some sides around it. And if you went and looked at the original Petty Enterprises building, it's sort of like a modge podge of of buildings, uh, right. according according to Kyle Petty and Richard, and it, it's sort of like a maze of buildings, and that's the way Petty Enterprises was from '49 to 2008, and then. Richard, uh, because of economics and because of financial situations and sponsor situations, you know, and, and personal situations, I guess you could say, went to curb uh, Mike Curb Motorsports in in 1984, and that's where he won the Firecracker 400 at Daytona. It wasn't a Petty Enterprises car, and that led to some other teams, you know, with Everham uh, Gillette Everham Motorsports, and then. That went into Richard Petty Motorsports and various various movements, and and now we see where it's gone to, to Petty uh, GMS Motorsports, and so he's had movements along the way, mm-hmm. all these years uh, moving. This is the the last, uh, the most recent, I should say, and uh, yeah, it's it's a little sad to see uh, Richard Petty Motorsports move, but you know it's an economics thing, and, and we see these types of things move. I'm just so happy that Richard's still involved in the sport and, 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 you know, he is going to be chairman of the, of the new team and and he'll be the face of the new team. We talked about last week, how it would not be, I don't think a, a good move for this new operation to not have him involved, you know, because he's known, as I said, in the piece all around the world and people who don't know who Richard Petty is, 
pretty much. Uh, at, at least they've heard the name, and they, maybe they don't cover NASCAR. I hadn't heard a lot about NASCAR. Well, they know who Richard Petty is because of all he's accomplished in the sport. So yeah, when they go to the, the to the corporate meetings and they look for sponsorships and they look for new uh, avenues uh, of of you know financing for the team, of course Richard Petty is someone that everybody knows. Like I say, all around the nation, all around the world, and if that if I was a team owner, I would certainly want Richard Petty on my side. So yeah, he's going to be an ambassador for the team, ambassador for NASCAR. I'm just happy to see that he's still uh, available to to meet fans and be around racetracks, you know. And he's told me this too, Jerry. He said, you know, when I talked to him recently before all this went down, he's and he's told me this many times. He said, "What would I do with myself? Yeah, you know, I I don't have a hobby. Racing's my hobby." I wouldn't, if I had to be home, I'd go stir crazy. All my kids are grown and they have kids and they've got kids. And, you know, I don't, my hobby is racing. That's all I've ever done. That's all I've ever wanted to do. And so I want to be around racetracks. That's where my friends are. That's, that's my life. And uh, so that's what sustains him is to be able to be around racetracks and be around race cars. And, and I'm just so excited about the fact, I think he's what, 83, 84 years old now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he looks like he's, you know, every, that, that smile and the sunglasses and the hat and the boots and the jeans. And I mean, good grief. You wouldn't even realize he's that old because he's so happy when he's around these cars and, and the fans and, and the friends and at the racetracks. And like I say, I, I'm just so excited about he's able to come to racetracks and, and be around those friends. So new venture, new cars, uh, new opportunity. And, uh, we'll see that might. Uh, might see the 42 and the 43 uh, with Ty Dillon and, and uh, you know, with Eric Jones, we might see him in victory lane in 2022. I hope so. Exactly. You know, one of the things, and, and I don't mean this in a negative way against Richard, but, you know, when his wife passed away a few years ago, I thought he would have slowed down that maybe he would have, um, you know, scaled back, if you will. And he didn't, um, you know, and, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you know, he doesn't have any hobbies and racing is his life. And that's why he wants to be around racetracks. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there and maybe you have a little bit better insight since you know Richard better than I do. You might have a little bit more better insight on, you know, why did he sell to, you know, regardless of it, Maury Gallagher or whomever, as opposed to, essentially keeping petty enterprises or petty motorsports within the family. I mean, uh, you know, Kyle, um, you know, I know he was with the organization there for a while. Then he, he kind of went out and did his own thing with broadcasting and things like that. Um, he still has a grandson, Kyle's son that uh, uh, potentially could run the operation. Are you a little surprised that it's not being kept in the family, so to speak? And again, I don't mean anything negative by that. I'm just kind of curious about the logistics of it, if you will. No, I'm really not surprised, Jerry. I think what most of what you're seeing now is it's it's more of a, a corporate game, more of a money game than it mm -hmm. used to be. Back in the back in the 70s, 80s, uh, it, it was more of a family sport. I'm not saying family is not involved anymore, but I'm just saying now with the amount of money that it, it takes to run a race team and with the charters being so expensive like they are, you know, I've heard numbers of you know 10 12 million dollars mm -hmm. this day and time to buy a charter from a race team it's just changed so much you know we've we've heard richard and bobby allison and 
and some of the older guard talk about how they'd go to the racetrack in the early seventies. And while they're out on the racetrack, you know, Kyle Petty would toss footballs with Dale Jarrett and Davey Allison in the infield. And those family connections, maybe they're still there, but they're not the way they used to be. The sponsorships back in the seventies, you know, I remember Bobby telling me several times how a full sponsorship for an entire season was a hundred thousand dollars. Which is hard to believe because now I don't think you could even run a car for a race for I know you can't for a hundred thousand, and so you're talking these days where you're talking charters at ten and twelve million, and you're talking about these new race cars that you're building, and so to answer your question, I guess in a long-winded way, it's more of a money game now. It's more of a corporate sponsorship game now. It's very very corporate more than it's ever been. And so I think the family operations of the Allisons and the Bakers and the Petties and the Yarbroughs, those of that, of that era really can't really exist like they did before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's, you still have the names associated with the, with uh, NASCAR, but behind the scenes, it's a, a network of, of corporate sponsors and corporate uh, people in the front offices of these race teams now more so than they ever have been and it's almost like other stick and ball sports on the professional level where you have front offices now where you really didn't have that in the past you you, the guy who would uh drive the truck so to speak might be the tire changer and the drivers a lot of times in the 70s would drive 500 miles in a race and then he might very well i've heard richard say he would do it he'd get in the car for 500 miles and they might help drive the truck home back to the race team so our race shop. So, uh, yeah, it's just a, a corporate big, big world now that that's why you don't see the families uh, doing a lot of that kind of thing like you used to in the past. Well, you know, you make really good points. And, and, but it, it reminds me or, um, you know, I think about one family that is still in the sport uh, that has been there as long as Richard Petty has been in, in Petty Enterprise. Actually, I think they've been there a little bit longer than Petty Enterprises, and that's the Wood Brothers. Mm-hmm. And they're very well um, uh, insulated, if you will, corporate-wise, to continue running it within the family. Um, but, you know, when when you hear Richard Petty, you know, essentially selling uh, his entire operation to Maury Gallagher, um, you, you wonder – what's the long-term sustainability for Wood Brothers, you know, because they're one of the two originals that, you know, along with Richard Petty uh, Motorsports or, you know, Petty Enterprises rather, uh, that started, you know, that were with NASCAR pretty much from the start. I mean, what what are your thoughts about the long-term sustainability for the Wood Brothers as well? Yeah, well, in that case, to Jerry, it's, uh, that was something that Roger Penske has been part of for the past eight or 10 years also, and, mm-hmm. and helped sustain the Wood Brothers. I mean, they are still Wood Brothers racing, but there, there are some undercurrents or some foundation with Team Penske there too, sort of a satellite team. Right. And so, yeah, the, the key players of Eddie Wood, Lynn Wood, Kim Wood, uh, and then John Wood, who's the right. son of Eddie, uh, is, is very much involved there. But I mean, you, you have to look at the fact that Eddie uh, is up in age 72, three years old. And then there's Eddie, I'm not sure, maybe 65, 66, not sure about Kim. But, you know, they've laid the foundation for Wood Brothers to be there, as, you know, for years to come. But it's 
that too is not as much of a family operation as it once was. Mm-hmm. Leonard, I'm not sure about Leonard's age. I want to say 87, 8, maybe. Mm-hmm. We sadly lost Glenwood a year or two, three years ago. And of course, Bernice Wood, uh, his wife, sadly has passed away now. So the foundation uh, there uh, still, but you know, that's that also is a uh, has moved into where Roger Penske is helping to sustain that race team. Still very much Wood Brothers Racing, don't get me wrong, but there Roger Penske has helped uh, to keep it Wood Brothers Racing. And uh, so, yeah, it's not as much a family operation from the corporate standpoint, but now the key players are still there. I'm not saying they're not. But uh, again, NASCAR uh, has changed so much and it's, and you, and the family operations, I don't know that could really sustain themselves in this world like they used to because of the cost, because of the, the need for the big backing of race teams, uh, as we see it today in 2021, 2022, mm-hmm. the costs are so big, the, the exposure is so big. Uh, the families are there, but you, you really need some, some strong financial backing and some strong foundations to, to maintain that. Well, you know, you raise a good, a lot of good points in that. And I kind of looked at, look at the situation with Richard Petty. I look at the situation with Wood Brothers, and then I kind of juxtapose it with Rick Hendrick. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, Rick is what, 74, I think, somewhere in that area, era, era, I can't even say it, <laughs> area, mm-hmm. let's just say area. Right. Um, but, you know, earlier this year, he announced that Jeff Gordon was going to be taking over as the um, the second in command, if you will. And with, I'm sure with a eye towards eventually Richard, I'm sorry, um, um, uh, Rick Hendrick, you know, essentially ceding over complete authority of Hendrick Motorsports to Jeff and everybody else that's there. Um, what is it going to mean, though, when we no longer really have the the owners, uh, either by retirement or sadly, if they pass away? they're not going to be involved in the sport anymore. I mean, like, you know, we've got Rick Hendrick, like I said, he's in the seventies, Jack Roush. I think he's pushing 80, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Richard Childress, I think is in the seventies. You know, a lot of the big names that we as NASCAR fans have uh, followed their teams and their own careers themselves for the last 40, 50, 60 years. How is that going to change the dynamic or the face of NASCAR going forward when you know, the big names that we still talk about today may not be here, you know, God forbid, 10, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. from now. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good, good point you bring up. And, and the guys who have been so smart in building these race teams, such as Roger Penske, such as Jack Roush, Richard Childress, uh, Rick Hendrick, the ones that you've mentioned, are also smart enough to realize that they are they are getting up an age and they are not going to be at the center of these race teams in the future and so there are there are some catch nets in place and there are some in infrastructure uh people in place that uh are already being there and and Jeff Gordon is a good example you know the you know Jeff has been there from from 1992 on and he's mm-hmm. one of the few like say a Jeff a Jimmy Johnson Jeff has been there as well that, that had their entire careers at Hendrick Motorsports. And so he's seen the ins and outs 
of all aspects of driving the cars. And then after his career was over, then he started looking at the management side. And that's something that he and Jeff, uh, Rick Hendrick and Jeff had been talking about for years and maybe had to talk Jeff into that a little bit to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm up in age and I need someone to look at the management side. And and to be quite honest with you, Ricky Hendrick was going to be in Mm -hmm. that role. We lost Ricky in 2004 in the tragic plane crash uh, there uh, going into Martinsville with so many others. And so with uh, Ricky uh, not in that position, Rick had to start looking at, okay, who is someone that I trust? Who's someone that I know uh, would be here uh, to manage the race team? And of course, Jeff was the perfect choice for that. And so, but Jeff is a very, very smart individual. I mean, he, he really has, he's a deep thinker. He's someone that uh, has got some incredible ideas about the future of not only Hendrick Motorsports, but the direction of NASCAR. And, and see, Je- uh, Rick has got that person in his back pocket the same way that Roger Penske, I'm mm-hmm. sure, does, and Rick, Rick, Richard Childress does. And there's, so there's some people behind the scenes that they're thinking, you know, don't get me wrong, they're thinking about that. You know, Roger Penske has to be. He's, I'm not sure how old he is, but he's 81, 82. I think maybe. he's 84, actually. Okay, 84. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so it's something they have sat down and thought about, you know, because they work so hard to build these incredible race teams. And so, and that's another factor, too. Each one of these race teams is 500 or so people who are dependent upon those decisions uh, for their livelihoods. And mm-hmm. that's a tremendous amount of, uh, uh, you know, of responsibility uh, on those, on their shoulders. And so, yeah, they, they've got to really think these things through. And so, yeah, it's something to think about the, and I mean, as you know, life deals some, some bad cards at times and, and we don't know when our time is up. And so, Believe me, all those race teams have got people in the in the back, uh, in the shadows, making those decisions. And and Richard and and Roger Penske and Richard Childress and all those guys, they aren't making those decisions alone. They've got staffs of people behind them that are make, helping them to make those decisions. And so they, if something were to happen, like a tragic uh, plane crash, as we unfortunately saw in two thousand four, uh, there's people and that step right in and help make the decisions uh, for the future. So, yeah. And along, I'm sorry to be so long winded with that answer, but yeah, there's people already in place helping them to make those decisions and and we'll continue on uh, when they retire or they're no longer here that hopefully there'll be seamless transitions where uh, we'll continue on and the, and the teams will be continue to be stronger and better. Exactly. The line of succession. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You know, we're talking about Richard Petty and we're also talking about this being episode number 43 of a lifetime in NASCAR and who made the number 43 important, not only important, but you know, the probably the, the most uh, iconic uh, number, be it on a race car, uh, a baseball player's uniform, a football player's uniform. I think number 43, you know, basically outweighs any other number out there of any athlete, in, in my opinion. And of course, that was uh, Richard Petty. You know, he he uh, wore or uh, carried that number on his side of his car for many, many, many years, and uh, almost what over ninety percent of his uh, NASCAR Cup wins came in that car. But Ben, again, this is episode forty-three of a lifetime in NASCAR. 
you've got some great stats about the number 43 and uh, who drove it and, as well as Richard Petty. But uh, so I'm going to leave the Lena down to you and let you kind of uh, give us a little bit of an education about the number 43. Well, sure, Jerry. And, you know, a lot of people think, uh, you know, obviously you, you put 43 with Richard Petty. And, and as I said in, in the leading piece here, you know, I mean, people that don't even know, a lot about NASCAR. Uh, they, when you say 43 immediately, you think Richard Petty and I, I've done that all my life and been, been doing this since I was 11 years old. And every time I see 43, whether it be on a tag or whether I be, uh, anytime I see the number 43 anywhere, I think Richard Petty, but there was a guy by the name of Jack Russell, believe it or not in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, September 11th, 1949, the first time, that the number 43 was put on the side of a race car. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he actually was the first one to, to drive it, but there are 192, actually 199 wins with the number 43. Richard Petty had 192 of those. Bobby Hamilton had two. Jim Pascal had two. John Andretti won. Eric Almarola won. And believe it or not, Richard Petty's father, Lee Petty, carried the number 43 to victory in April of 1959 at North Wilkesboro Speedway. And uh, so 192 of Richard Petty's victories uh, came in the number 43. And there was eight other victories in the 41 and 42 uh, that Richard carried to victory lane also. But yeah, and 43 is just a number that, you know, like I say, people outside of NASCAR relate to Richard and and as I said in the piece earlier, he didn't want 43, he wanted 24. And mm -hmm. it just didn't work out. And so what would that have just, done for Jeff Gordon? I mean, if he would not have been the 20, you know, if Richard had been the 24 and kept that number, what would he we have happened to like the to Jeff Gordon? Would he have been driving the 43? I mean, he kind of know that stuff, you know. I don't know, but you know, there's a story out there, believe it or not, just to change gears slightly. As it turned out, Rich, uh Jeff Gordon was destined to drive the, the number 46. And oh, that's right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Right. And there was some type of licensing problem with 46 and it had something to do with the days of thunder movie and they couldn't get 46. And so set that went back to the number 24 for Jeff and a lot of race fans don't realize there was a, another driver by the name of Cecil Gordon in the mm -hmm. early seventies that drove number 24 and Cecil never won a race in number 24, but he had number 24 for many years and uh, so, ironically, there was another guy by the name of Gordon, which was Jeff Gordon, who who did win with number 24. But, yes, Cecil I, Cecil was a good friend of mine who won uh, or drove many races in number 24. And then after he retired, he went to work for Richard Childress uh, and, and actually worked for Greg Sachs uh, as a crew chief. And just, just a super individual. We lost uh, Cecil several years ago. Uh, no longer with us, but yeah, just a fun guy and and a great, uh, great driver, great crew chief, great crewman. And, uh, but yeah, they, they, Jeff was, was destined to have number 46. Cause so, and there were some photos out there of a DuPont uh, rainbow colored uh, Chevrolet that had 46 on it. Oh, and, I, like to, I like to see that. I, yeah. I don't, I've never seen that. That's interesting. Yeah. And it, it just didn't work out to have 46. And so, and Al Unser Jr., by the way, did drive a Hendrick Motorsports Chevrolet with number fix, number 46 on it in a Daytona 500. I'll be done. So there you go. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's just funny how fate has it to where, you know, 
it worked out that Richard had number 43, but he didn't want 43. He'd, he told me once, he said, I just used to dream about 24 because it made sense. And my dad had 42. I wanted 24. And I used to jot 24 down on notebook paper when I was in <laughs> high school that that was going to be my number. And that was it. I had my heart set on it. And then people had it. And it's like, well, I couldn't talk about it not having it. Right. And, 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 you know, the forties, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, for whatever reason, you know, we've talked about it before, not to bore our listeners, but 42 is on that tag and, and uh, that uh, Lee Petty had on that North Carolina license plate. So he just stuck with the forties, 41, 42, 40, 43, 44, 45. And that just happened to be the numbers he'd stick with when he had extra entries into races. And so uh, I'm sure I'm sure that Lee Petty said, well, Richard, you're just going to run 43 and that's it. Cause you got to remember the way Lee Petty ran his operation was when, when Richard won a race, he didn't get pats on the back. He's like, well, you won this one. Why didn't you win last week? <laughs> or, or he finished second or third. It's like, well, why you finished third? Why didn't you finish second? Or if you went finished second, why didn't you win? It wasn't, Hey, you finished in the top five. You were great. Uh, that's not the way Lee Petty thought he thought was, okay, if you won this week, that means you should have won last week. He was a sort of a slave driver. And if you will, he was, he was very, but he had to be that way to make his race teams win because he, the, the money they generated had to pay the bills, had to pay the payroll, had to pay for getting cars to racetracks. It, that was the only money they generated for a very small payroll of people. Mm -hmm. And that was his mentality. You have to win races to make this work. There's no time to pat you on the back. You have to win. And so, that was the petty way. And, uh, so, you know, and, 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 and Kyle Petty told me one time, this uh, was one of the greatest lines ever. He told me, he said for, for Lee Petty, he said, he didn't care anything about trophies. He cared about the money. Yeah. When it came to Richard, Richard would, would race for a bucket of chicken. <laughs> You know, he didn't care about the money. If the trophy was the buck and the chicken, he'd brace his heart out for it. So right. that was the difference in the two of them. So anyway, they're, they're just a, a dynasty. The Petties, they knew how to win. They knew how to race. They were, and, and they, but incredible people, though, you know, just incredibly down-to-earth people, especially Richard. And, I mean, it just, I can't say enough good about the man. He, if he was in the studio right now with us doing this podcast, he wouldn't talk as much about racing as he would just, Hey, what I did last week yep. and how much fun I had last week and what we're going to do for Christmas as a family. And it, it, Oh, well, let's talk about racing, Richard. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. He would be back <laughs> to, you know what I mean? You know right. him. I mean, he would, he just, he's such a down to earth person and I love talking to him and love him as a friend and he's just a, a great individual. I can't say enough good about him. Exactly. You know, I, I, I have to wonder if, you know, the 200 wins that he earned in cup racing. I have to wonder if, if some of those might've been kind of, I have to win or else my dad's going to be ticked off at me. I, got, I don't want to be him <laughs> yeah. ticked off me, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. you're dead on, you're dead on because he, <laughs> he never, he just, he never got that. Uh, you did great today. He never got that because yeah. it was like, it's expected of you to win today. It's expected of you to win this championship. And if you come home without the win, what's wrong with you and yeah. that was that kind of got a little bit contentious between the two of them at sometimes because that's the way lee thought it's like you've got to win and if you don't win uh, that i mean it's just expected of you to win 
Exactly. And, exactly. You know, so that's the way it was. You know, here's an interesting stat that I was just, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> I looked up on racing reference stat info. And this is an interesting stat. Now, you mentioned that uh, Jack Russell was the first driver that drove the 43 back in 1949. But the number 43, there have been 2,169 races. That number has appeared in cup racing. And of course, the 199 is the most of those were by Richard, uh, the wins were by Richard Petty. But this is what I find interesting, Ben. 43 is the, has the most wins starts or most starts. But the number that has the most wins is number two. That's the number 11. Now, the, there's been 2,169 races for the number 43. The number 11 has started 2,096 win, uh, races, and it has an NASCAR record of 226 wins. So you can't even say the 43 is like the all-time winningest car because in theory it's or not car number. It's in theory because it's not. Right. That's true. And, you know, Richard would say, even today, in a very humble way, he'd say, well, uh, I've lost a, a lot more than I've won, you know, even <laughs> though I'm right. the most, I'm the winningest driver. It's the only way he said, well, why is everybody making such a big deal? I mean, winning 200 races, I, I, I lost a lot more than that. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. I mean, you know, it, it's like, but Richard, you, nobody will ever top your record of winning 200 races. He, he said, yeah, but I lost a lot more of that. So that just shows you how humble he is about his accomplishments. I exactly. Mean, exactly. I, you know, I just admire the guy for just not, you know, he, he has every right to be the biggest, big head of the, in the room and, you know, be cocky and all that, but he's never that way. I just, I admire him for just not being that way. He's right. He's got every right to be, but. Well, you know, the one thing that I find interesting about Richard is that um, even with all the things that he's gone through in his, what, six generate six decades of racing, yeah. seven races, I guess, seven, mm -hmm. almost seven, seven decades of racing, including, you know, being a team owner in that, is that he has never changed. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, in, in this sport, as you and I well know, there's a lot of um, it's a good sport. It's a good family sport, but like anything else, like any other profession, there's politics involved. There's, you know, uh, there's some negative things, but Richard has always, like you said earlier, always seems to have a smile on his face. He's like a guy that walks around without a care in the world. I mean, he could be worrying about payroll next week, you know, before obviously this merger, but, you know, but he always had a smile on his face. And I, I just commend the man for that. And, you know, to, to what your point about if we were to bring him on the show, he'd talk about everything but racing. That's just the way he is. I mean, yeah. you know, he 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 is just such a. Um, I, I can't remember who wrote it. I want to say it was. Um, oh gosh, I know I, I the name is on the tip of my tongue, but somebody once called Richard a Renaissance man, and in a sense, he is a Renaissance man because mm -hmm. he's weathered all these generations, he weathered all these decades, he's weathered all the different changes in the sport, all the different car numbers. You know, that uh, we went from um, Bill France Senior to Bill France Junior to to. Uh, uh, Brian France. And then now obviously Jim France, um, he's weathered all that. And he's, you know, he's, it's almost like he's never changed. I mean, you mentioned about, you know, how he's, you know, stays in shape and, you know, he, you, he's 80, what, 83, 84 years old. He looks like he's probably in his early sixties still. I mean, he just, he never changes. And I, yeah. I love that about the guy, you know? Yeah, I do. And, you know, some of the best advice he gave me once, he never calls me Ben, by the way. He just say, Hey, bud. Hey, bud. That's hey, right. <laughs> yeah. Hey, bud. Come here. Let me tell you something. And we, we sit at the back of the transporter and these little director chairs and he propped right. his feet up on a stack of tires. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, there's something, some great advice I want to give you actually two pieces of advice, but 
one, he shared with me one day, he said, you see all this around you? I said, yeah. He said, don't ever, don't ever take this for granted and, yeah. and remember to have, remember to enjoy it because he said, this goes by so fast mm-hmm. and he's right. And he's so, so right about that because our, you know, you look down the road and you, you think back to the seventies and eighties in my case, I mean, it's like, wow, this does go by fast. So you really do have to remember that. And there's a piece of advice he gave my son once when he went with me to a, an interview went back in the petty enterprises days and it really did pay off. And I'll share this very quickly, but he told my son, my son, Aaron, how he's 30, but at the time he was about 16. Mm-hmm. And we just went, I said, you want to ride along with me? I'm going to go see Richard Petty for an interview. He said, sure, I'd love to. So he did. And, and he and, and Richard, Aaron and Richard just got to talking one a little bit there after the interview and I was, I had slipped off to go talk to Dale Inman. And he said, well, you can just hang with me while he's doing that. So they, again, just hit it off immediately. And he told Aaron, he said, let me tell you what to do about something. I said, okay, if you ever find yourself in trouble on the highway and you feel like, I mean, you've lost control of your car. He said, what I, what you need to do is you need to ball up and like behind the wheel just get in a tight ball if you feel like if like if you feel like you're going to flip a car for whatever mm-hmm. reason mm-hmm. just just get as tight as you can behind the wheel that's the best advice i want to give you in the event that you're on ice whatever the case may be well not long after that a couple i guess he was probably 18 or 19 at the time but he hit a culvert he got a little bit sideways everything was cool he wasn't doing about 45 miles an hour but he got sideways a little bit and the car did flip. He was in a Camaro for whatever reason, praise the good Lord. But he thought about that seconds before he, the car went over mm-hmm. and the, it flattened the roof of this car that he was driving. Okay. But he said, for whatever reason, I had the presence of mind that day to think about what Richard told me. And he did, he just got in a ball and he got out of the car, but it did flatten the roof on the car, but he had enough room to get out of it. Wow. And so he called me, I was at my office at NASCAR illustrated and he called me and said, dad, I got a little problem. I flipped my car. And I said, all right, but our, and I thought he was kidding at first. He said, no, dad, I really did flip my car. I said, but are you, are you okay? He said, are you really okay? He said, yeah, but, but he said, listen, he said, and this is typical Aaron, but we're going to need, we're going to need mufflers. We're going to need tailpipes. We're going to need to, you know, I said, Aaron, 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 Aaron don't worry about the car. Are you okay? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. He said, but you know what I thought about first? I thought about what Richard told me right, to get right. to, to ball up. And you know what? I just have always been grateful to Richard for that, that he gave him such great advice. And he, and I'm so thankful Aaron thought about it, but it's, it was nothing crazy. It just got, he wasn't going fast. It just, it just got out from under him. And Richard would gave him some incredibly good advice about what to do. And I think that saved his life that day. And so did the highway patrol. He said, but you know, Richard's always offering young people advice like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and always to say, look, you don't know when you're going to get in trouble, nothing sideways. You know, he wasn't speeding or anything like that. It's just, he got in trouble. And so that's the kind of stuff I admire because he's all the time trying to help young folks, uh, you know, in their driving or whatever advice he can offer. And he don't want anything in return. He's yep. just trying to offer them a little bit of advice and that day I will, I'm, I will forever be grateful to him for helping save my son's life. 
because he just offered a little bit of advice over a, over a soft drink <laughs> one afternoon right, when right. he went with me. Right, and right, he, right. He remembered it. So I, I just can't say enough good about the guy. And he has every right, I guess, to be cocky and you know, bragging about all he's done, but he, he doesn't do that. And I can't, he could, some, there's some sports figures out there that could sit down and really take some great advice from Richard Petty. Exactly. Well, you know, not only is Richard the greatest How to be as a human. Right. Well, I was going to say, you know, not only was Richard a great driver, he's a great philosopher, too, obviously, with the advice he gives and all that kind of thing, too. Sure. That's great. Well, you know, we're talking about Richard Petty, but uh, we have to move on to our next segment of the show. And it's still going to be kind of tied to Richard Petty, though, because we're going to be talking about the driver of the week. And that is the late, great Bobby Hamilton, who drove the number 43 for a number of years for Richard Petty. And, you know, Bobby uh, was the kind of guy that, you know, he was kind of the rough and tumble guy that you expected that came out of the 60s and the 70s and 80s. But he really had a, a heart of gold. And, um, you know, we we talk about him, you know, as the driver of the week this week. And the one big uh, story that I can share about him, my recollection of him, we were at the 2004, uh, I think it was just the Trucks and the Xfinity Banquet uh, in New York. It was not the big cup banquet, but it was just the smaller one. It was more of an intimate kind of thing. And uh, Bobby was at our, our table with, with his wife, and uh, he was just such a treat to talk to. And I had interviewed him a couple of times before that, but we never really got to know him as a person. And he was just so affable, so friendly, so you know, you take him out of the race car and he becomes a totally different person. I mean, he was a, a very fierce competitor behind the wheel, but outside of the race car, he was just so laid back, so mellow, so friendly, so, you know, cracking jokes and that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say he was a close personal friend of mine, but, you know, he knew me, I knew him. And when I heard the word or heard the uh, the news that he was diagnosed with head and neck cancer, I mean, that hit me almost as tough as yeah. uh, when Dale Earnhardt passed away uh, in the crash of the Daytona 500, because Bobby was just such a an, uh, a good guy. He was just a, such a good, good guy. And um, you have a little bit more. I know you want to share about Bobby, so I'll turn it over to you. But I mean, that's the, that's my biggest or favorite memory of Bobby Hamilton. Just we you know we had a one night, a few, a few hours at a banquet, and he just was just a guy that just you wanted to spend a, you know, a few more hours just, you know, shooting the bull and having a beer yeah. or two or so soft drink, what have you. Uh, and, you know, he left us way too early. And, and you know, the other thing too, and I'll, I'll um, um, I don't want to make this too long, but his passing to me greatly impacted the racing career of his son, Bobby Hamilton Jr. Because Bobby Hamilton Jr. was doing very well at the time, but when after his dad passed away, it was like that kind of I don't know if it had a, you know, a, a, a pronounced effect on Bobby Jr. or what have you. But he never was the race car driver that he was when Bobby Sr. was still alive. I mean, tell us about some of your thoughts. about yeah. Bobby. Hamilton. Yeah, well, I, I agree with. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I agree with that, Jerry. He, you know, I think it was devastating to all of us because, I mean, Bobby was somebody that got along really well with the media, I think, and just a lot of fun to talk to. He was from Nashville, Tennessee, and 
uh, actually, he quit school when he was about 14 years old, and his parents died about that same time when he was a year earlier when he was 13. Both of his parents did. Mm-hmm. So he was raised by his grandparents, and it was a, his, his grandfather went by the name of Preacher Hamilton. And believe it or not, I don't know if you, the fans that are listening here remember a guy by the name of Marty Robbins, but Marty was a country music singer, mm-hmm. and Marty... Uh, just loved to drive race cars. He also started out driving race cars at Nashville Speedway on a local level. Mar- Marty did. And then he went on to drive numerous uh, NASCAR Cup Series races. But Preacher Hamilton was his <clears throat> car owner and crew chief, which was Bobby Hamilton's uh, grandfather. And uh, so that's kind of how he was introduced. But Bobby drove some a lot of races at Nashville Speedway. And then he got into the Cup series side later on but he like you said he was in the trucks and in the xfinity cars and then they needed some stunt drivers if you will to drive some stuff for days of thunder i did not know this yeah and so yeah and so so uh that's how he got his start now keep in mind like you said he was already driving in nascar competition Mm -hmm. but they needed some drivers to help with the days of thunder movie in 1989 and so that's how he got his start uh, in the Cup Series by doing some driving for the Days of Thunder movie. I'll be darn. I'll be darn. Yeah. No, he, and, he, he, he yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's fine. And then then he, uh, of course, got some um, some rides uh, leading up to that. And then, of course, he, he got in some good rides, like the ride with Richard Petty. He won at Phoenix in 96 and uh, for Richard Petty, Rockingham in 97 for Richard, and then Larry McClure at Martinsville in 98, and then Talladega for Andy Petrie in 2001. But it all started because they were looking for some folks. I think Greg Sachs drove some races for the Days of Thunder movie. And the way they did that was they actually started cars in actual races. Uh, I don't, they did score some of those, I mean, those starts, but they, they let them race in the race and used them as footage cars mm-hmm. for the movie. And so Bobby was one of those drivers. Greg Sachs was one of those drivers. And then they're like, well, these guys are, you know, pretty good. I mean, obviously they, they proven themselves because they were great at what they were doing prior to getting the cup series. And then that led to, uh, to driving in the cup series. Exactly. And Bobby yeah. left us on January 7th, 2007, again, yeah. passing from head and neck cancer. So It'll be 15 years here in a couple of weeks uh, that, you know, we lost Bobby Hamilton. And, uh, you know, I, I would I, I try not to do this too often. But, you know, when you have somebody of his caliber, his character, his personality, you can't but help think about what might have been had he not been afflicted with the cancer if he would have been able mm-hmm. to continue on i mean he he was you know getting towards the the end of his career but you know still was very dynamic still very much a, a champion uh you know a winner i mean if he would have been around could that have changed uh the future for his son in his own racing career i mean there's just so many questions and, and variables that you 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 can't help but think about what would have happened if he if he had not gotten cancer if he had beaten cancer that kind of thing but but anyway so bobby hamilton uh senior he is our driver of the week and we're going to move into our last segment of the show and you know this is one that you know ben and i were talking off the uh, off the air before we started taping and i'm looking forward to talking about this because this is going to bring back a lot of memories to a lot of uh, a lot of the older fans but at the same time it's going to help i hope 
the newer fans, the younger fans. And we're talking about what about North Wilkesboro Speedway and Rockingham Speedway? Uh, they are going to kind of get some, uh, I guess, uh, maybe a second or even if you want to call it a third chance because they're going to start getting some uh, uh, money from the state government in North Carolina for a lot of infrastructure changes and, and improvements and that kind of thing. I'm hoping we're going to see racing uh, not only at North Wilkesboro again, but certainly uh, bring Rockingham back up to to, to uh, par because it was only, what was it, about two years ago, three years ago, there was a lot of talk about, you know, Rockingham, uh, if I remember right, it, it it had some really serious financial difficulties, and there was talk about just bulldozing the place, and uh, I think they were going to build a um, an industrial park on the, on the property, mm-hmm. and that didn't happen, so thankfully for that, but Ben, tell us a little bit more about your thoughts about North uh, Wilkesboro and Rockingham, that they may live again uh, based upon this money that's going to be, uh, you know, it's already in the North Carolina budget for next year to help the infrastructure for these tracks. Yeah, that's that's true, Jerry. And there's some talk about the, the North Carolina state budget that was signed Thursday by Governor Roy Cooper allocating $40 million to tracks at Wilkesboro and Rockingham and some for Charlotte Motor Speedway that, you know, allocations would be like 18 million for Wilkes County for the track, 9 million to go to, um, to the Rockingham track and maybe 13 million towards Charlotte. I mean, that's, that's good news. You know, if, if they can get some money going in those directions, I mean, it's just so sad to go over and look at Wilkesboro speedway and, and it's really a ghost town over there. It's just sad to see, the walls, you can see the imprints of the North Wilkesboro Speedway on the walls, and you mm-hmm. can see the, um, you know, the stands are still there. The buildings over there have, have all kind of caved in, and I, if I'm not mistaken, there's been an effort by some volunteers to just kind of go ahead and take some of those buildings down. If they're not already down, some of them have been in the process of being taken down because they're not safe. And uh, it's just so sad. The last race they had there was September 29th, 1996, and it was won by Jeff Gordon. Uh, I actually have a, a piece of memorabilia that I bought uh, at a charity auction. It was uh, a goodies uh, headache powder kind of banner that mm-hmm. they, they did fly there at the last one. And it's out in the lunchroom there, and I'm kind of proud of that. But it's 25, what, 25? five years ago it's hard to believe it's been that long and for the longest time the track itself uh you know i think i don't remember the year but kevin harvick back when he's driving for richard childress took a car there and said don't touch the track it was in the track then was in good shape and then mm-hmm. then there was some grass that began growing through it and you know i think dylan hart jr went over there to to maybe map it out for some a game that they were doing on computer uh to try to get it exact but yeah, it's just so sad. My gosh, it's so sad to see the thing deteriorate. I remember some really great races there that, uh, you know, uh, you know, just uh, a thousand great races there that and I hated to see it go away. And I, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that we could uh, get back to racing there. I think recently somewhere I, I heard or read that Chocolate Myers with RCR had a great idea, just make it a dirt track like it started out being a dirt track. I like that. I, I like that. You know, I think it'd be a great idea. I've certainly cut the cost down, uh, and you could run it as as one of the the dirt tracks like it started out being when it was first built by Enix Staley. Uh, so I'll hope that it would come back. And then, of course, 
Rockingham, uh, the Rockingham Speedway, I think is still in excellent condition. They say uh, a, a report I read the past couple of days uh, said that they would like to re- repave that racetrack through mm-hmm. current owners and hopefully get it back into shape. And even, you know, even when that track, I don't think needs a huge, huge amount of work. Uh, but it was a shame when they NASCAR took those two away. And it's ironic that maybe there's, I, I love the fact that they're talking about possibly coming back to those. We should have never left. And uh, that's what the fans want. So let's, exactly. let's hope and pray we, we someday get back to them. You know, I, I'm, I'm hoping I don't have my facts mixed up here. But I remember a story about North Wilkesboro, probably, oh gosh, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I think it was. And again, I'm, I'm, for whatever reason, I keep on thinking it was a gentleman from England had come over to the States and did this long story. Um, and I don't remember the publication that put it out, but I mean, it had photos uh, galore about how the track had deteriorated and everything. It was just such a fascinating read. And you're right. I mean, you know, the photos showed uh, the roof on, I think one of the concession stands was collapsed in. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I, I, I believe I may be wrong on this, but I believe that um, the, some of the local fire departments used one or two of the buildings to, you know, do some rescue training and that kind of thing over the years. But, you know, how great would it be to resurrect that track? But my question is this though, if they're going to get $18 million, is that enough to bring it up to, you know, spec, if you will? I mean, I, I would think that to bring that facility up, I mean, if it became a dirt trick, yeah, it'd be a little bit, be less expensive, but, you know, to redo a lot of the buildings, you know, you're going to have to obviously tear out a whole bunch of seats and replace them with new ones. I mean, I would have to think, and I'm not a, an accountant and I'm certainly not an expert on racetracks, but I would think, you'd probably need at least double the 18 million that they're going to get from the state to really bring that track up to, for lack of a better word, code, if you will. What, what are mm-hmm. your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, I would hope that, okay, if they got 18, that, you know, I'm hoping Speedway Motorsports would maybe add 18 to it. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. I agree with you. I think it would take more than that to get it uh, back to par. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it would be, having to start from scratch maybe i don't know but it, it depends i i haven't seen it recently it you know sometimes sadly sometimes you're better off to to build a new house versus mm-hmm. fix the one yep. that you have i don't know exactly i have not seen it in a while um i just remember so many incredibly good races there and just the aura of such a hallowed piece of real estate racing real estate if you will because I just, I don't know, my mind just floods all these incredible races that they had. Um, I remember one race there very quickly, 1978, where Bobby Allison won the race, but he couldn't get the car to victory lane because he lost a wheel. Yeah. And yep. so Bobby actually, I think, is the first driver that I know of that actually walked to victory lane without a race car. And wow. Wow. The, the, race, the race car, I think they ended up putting it on a jack and or maybe a wrecker and pulled it to victory lane, but he didn't drive it to victory lane. That's one race. I remember the race there where Dale Earnhardt and Ricky Rudd crashed on the last lap and Jeff Bodine was running third and he ended up winning the race. And that was a real, real problem between their pit, the pit crews that day. 
I remember Brett Bodine winning in his only race there. I mean, gosh, I could go on for the next two hours about, <laughs> you know, all the races I saw. Um, yeah. So I love Wilkesboro and, you know, it's not too far from where I live here in Salisbury, North Carolina. It's about 45 minutes. That was the beauty of it. Everybody in this area, you could be there. You could go. I remember real quick, Jerry, I remember going to church, uh, when I was a kid and we could get out of church and drive there, go by the house, grab the cooler with, you know, sandwiches, whatever, and get there by one o'clock and see Kel Yarbrough, Benny Parsons, Richard Petty, David Pearson. I mean, we could get there by one, but by the time the thing started to see the Holly Farms 400 or whatever. Right. And I mean, it's just right here. It's right at the house, you know, and, and see a great race, be out of there by five. And then go down after the race and visit with the drivers. I mean, I was uh, 14, 15 at the time. It was just one of those great racetracks that you could have a Sunday afternoon and and just enjoy being close to the house. I mean, exactly. it was just a great track. I mean, it, right. it didn't take very long to get there. Well, here's here's the 18 million or 40 million or whatever question. Okay. If they refurbish it and bring it up to par. Could we potentially see NASCAR races there again? Because I've got to figure somebody knows something about the future. Why are they going to throw this much money into the infrastructure to that track as well as well, Rockingham obviously can run a race tomorrow if they wanted to, but right. um, there's got to be some long-term plans for North Wilkesboro to bring it back. I mean, would it be, you know, essentially like a, um, a short track for, you know, the modifies, the late models, what have you, or could we see NASCAR racing as a whole come yeah. back there? Yeah, I think you'd have to Jerry, because here's the deal about five years ago, six years ago, there were some local folks there that worked really, really, really hard and kudos to them for trying to open the track and get it back going again. And there was mm -hmm. some late model cars there, local folks, uh, that did open it and they had some great racing, but the problem was they didn't have the big names to draw the crowds. Mm -hmm. And so in order to put that kind of money back into the racetrack, honestly, you'd have to have a cup race to, to generate, to fulfill having that much money go back into it because they tried it. And I, and I take my hat off to those folks who worked so incredibly hard to get the track back open and they did open it again, but they just couldn't draw the crowds that they needed to make it work. Right. And, and I did attend some of those races with the late model folks racing and there was some great racing. So in order to, I mean, yes, to answer your question, if they're going to put that kind of money back into it, they, they'd have to know that they have uh, some cup action or some type of NASCAR action there, because it's not going to work if you're going to put that kind of money into it and not have the, the cup series or Xfinity series or some degree of that caliber to come back there. Cause it, it, there's no point in putting that kind of money into it. If you don't have that draw of exactly of, of racing. What do you remember what the, um, the seating capacity was at North Wilkesboro? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't, uh, I want to say the 60, maybe 60,000. Oh, I'm that, guessing, that much. Oh, I didn't know. It was I'm, I'm off the top. It's off the top of my head. Uh, so then it could, think, yeah, so they could do a cup race and pretend they could, I, I could be a little off on that. I mean, that's just the number that just, when you said it popped in my head, I want to say that mm -hmm. uh, maybe I, I don't think it's less than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the 60 range. 
That's interesting. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, I could be off, but I think it's about that. Mm-hmm. But then, then there's the the age old question: if you if they if North Wilkesboro is brought up to uh, to spec, so to speak, and let's say three years from now, let's just say hypothetically, what does NASCAR do in terms of creating a space for that track on the schedule of the Cup schedule? They're going to have to take a race away from another track. You know, then you start thinking, okay, where does this race come from? Because I don't see that NASCAR expanding past 30, you know, the current 36 races. But, I mean, any thoughts to that about what potentially could happen? Uh, I am speculating to the nth degree of speculation. Right. Okay. I would think that with the open, open-mindedness of NASCAR right now under Ben Kennedy, wouldn't surprise me if they're doing some Wednesday night, Friday night type stuff mm. to where they're doing some mid midweek racing. Uh, that's what I think they would do. And I think you'll see some races, uh, at smaller venue type tracks like that, like a Wilkesboro, uh, maybe a midweek Martinsville. It's just me spec- me being old and speculative in the recliner. But I mean, <laughs> that's just me. I just think that's the kind of thinking they're doing because they, you know, I, I think that's the only way you can make it work if you're en route to another racetrack. I, listen, there's nothing off the table. I used to say that will never, ever happen. I don't say that anymore. If you're going to go all the way to L.A. Coliseum to run a 100-lap race or 75 laps, whatever that is, nothing's off the table anymore. Right, right. So, so it wouldn't surprise me if they said we're going to want, run a Wednesday night 300-lap Cup Series race and a Gen 7 car at Wilkesboro, nothing would surprise me. Well, okay, then I'm going to really put you on the spot here. If they're going to bring North <laughs> Wilkesboro back, why can't they bring back Chicagoland Speedway? I mean, that's 25 minutes from my house, and I, I th- you know, from well, all the rumors, that that track is said and done, and uh, you know, it, it's sad because you know it opened in 2001 and it closed in what 2019. Um, and they're going from everything I've yeah. heard, they're going to bulldoze that as well as the adjacent Route 66 dragway. And they're going to make it a, I think it's like a 1.7 million square foot Amazon super distribution center. I mean, I would love to see, you know, the track in my backyard reopen, but unfortunately, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Uh, anything is possible in this day and time. Um, you, they could rebuild the track at Chicago land and make it a quarter mile. Yep. 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 I mean, nothing would surprise me. I used to say that will never, ever happen in NASCAR. I will never say that again. That's right. I mean, I've seen so many things. I said, Hey, they put dirt on Bristol. Yep. Okay. I never thought that would happen. Right. I used to think I knew what I was talking about, <laughs> you know, and I just can't, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, nothing would surprise me anymore because they've, They've come out, they put lights under the cars at Bristol. I never thought that would happen. So, hey, and I say that in a positive way. I say that because, I mean, they are looking for ways to bring fans to the track and and create uh, a brand new fan and a brand new way to race and kudos to them. If If they can come up with some kind of way to do it, race on the streets or whatever. So, so back to our original conversation, if they, had a Wednesday night race at Wilkesboro Speedway using a Gen 7 car under the lights. Uh, hey, that is totally cool with me. <laughs> I'm well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, I mean, if, if they were to have a, uh, you know, to build a um, an Amazon facility around Chicagoland Speedway, we could call it the Amazon 500. Hey, there's a natural. Absolutely. 
But you, absolutely. And you also mentioned <laughs> one, one track we didn't talk about that yeah. is going to have a um, a total um, uh, do over, if you will, is mm-hmm. um, uh, California Speedway, Auto Club yeah. Speedway. They're yeah. going to make that yeah. a, a half mile uh, uh, track, much like Bristol, with going from a two mile super speedway to a half mile. And I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think they actually begin construction on that next year. Is it? I think I think that's correct. And you know, if you'd have said to me two years ago that we were going to have an, a road course race at Indianapolis, yeah, I would have never. I said what. I would have said that. So, I mean, I, I don't say that in a negative way. I say that in a positive way. I think there, there are no boundaries there. Yeah. It's everything's on the horizon and okay. I'm, I'm trying real, I'm 61 years old. I'm trying really hard to get on this bandwagon of, of new and exciting and let's try it. And, you know, cause I mean, I'm stuck in my old historic ways and I'm trying to I'm trying to broaden my horizons. I really am trying for 2022. I'm trying to put on a new hat, and I'm trying to say, okay, let's try this. Let's see how this goes. So uh, yeah, so I really think Wilkesboro, and there might be another track out there we're not thinking about that they could race on and, and really have a great show. I mean, I still I still think you could race at Eldora in a Cup car. I, I think that's a possibility. I mean. Nothing's off the table for me. Let's just well, try it. Let's see how it goes. Well, you know, you really raised a lot of good points. <clears throat> and, you know, we look at this past season, there were seven cup races on road courses. And this this is, to me, the next natural progression, the next next natural evolution. And um, I, forget, I can't remember which uh, conference it was. I was at the PRI show in Indianapolis over the weekend, the big racing trade show. And one of the, uh, I can't remember which, which one it was, but it was brought up about the fact that, you know, NASCAR had so many cup races on uh, road courses this year, and they'll have again in 2022, that it's almost inevitable we're going to see a street course race, much like the Long Beach Grand Prix or, you know, uh, the, the uh, Toronto uh, uh, IndyCar race, you know, that's running the streets down there. The St. Petersburg race in IndyCar is running the streets. I would love to see, and I think it is going to happen. I've been fighting for this for probably 20 years at least. I've been mm-hmm. saying we need a street course race. And I know there was a, this, we're going back probably about, uh, let's see, probably maybe 2004, 2005, 2006, somewhere in that time frame. There was a lot of talk about maybe doing a street course race here in Chicago. And then that died pretty quickly. The administration didn't want to get behind it. And that was pretty much the end of it. But what, what are your thoughts about maybe a street course race? I mean, and could you envision where it potentially might be. Yeah, I think it's going to happen. I think within the next, oh, I don't know, three to five years. Yeah, mm-hmm. you'll see that where it would be. Gosh, I mean, it could it could be anywhere. Uh, I mean, again, you know, we opened up a brand new venue at LA Coliseum. I, mean, mm-hmm. I didn't see that one coming. Right. Honestly, I'll be completely honest. I never saw that one coming. So it could be anywhere for that matter, um, wherever, whatever city would like to host a NASCAR event. Um, I could, I mean, I could see that coming, you know, uh, very quickly, Jerry, there was a time when, and maybe today's fans may not realize this, but there was a time when NASCAR would go up North and they would race Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday night at all mm-hmm. these little small short tracks, the Northern tour is what they right. called it. Right. And they would just go hop from track to track to track. That's not off the table to me. 
uh, where they would do some midweek races. It might be 150 mile races, you know, back in those days or 200 lap races. And nothing, I mean, like I said, I think it's exciting that they're talking about some of this stuff and, um, you know, it's a, it might be a little hard on the drivers and the teams, I guess, but I mean, you know, you might have some midweek races and then you get into the big races on the weekends, like it used to be. Uh, so I I'm excited about the future. Uh, I, the one thing I just, I'm, I'm really struggling with is moving the door number to the fender. I'm still struggling with that. <laughs> <laughs> but everything else, everything else is I'm, I'm trying to get on board with. So. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Ben, as usual, just another treat to talk to you and uh, really enjoy, uh, you know, this is episode 43 meant a lot to me because of the connection with Richard Petty and, mm -hmm. you know, a lifetime in NASCAR has really, I think really taken off with a lot of more listeners we're getting, uh, you know, every week. And, um, you know, I just, I think that, you know, we've just kind of scratched the surface. I mean, you are a fantastic historian. There's no question about it. And, you know, I try to throw in my little bits and pieces here and there. And, but I mean, I am just in awe of some of the stories you have. You need to write a, you need to write a, an encyclopedia, not just a book, but an encyclopedia of history. <laughs> well, no, I don't know about that, Jerry. You, you got some stuff too. We just have fun with this. That's the main thing. Exactly. We really have fun talking about all the things we talk about and it's a pleasure and an honor to do this with you. So I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, that's going to put a wrap on episode number 43 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. He's Ben White. I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Hope you enjoyed the show, everyone. And check in next week for the episode number 44 of a Lifetime in NASCAR. Have a good week, everyone. We'll take care. You take care. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care, everybody. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.